being a man is really just being your authentic self. And if you think about it, it takes more courage. It takes more of a fuck you mindset to be yourself than it does to follow what society thinks masculinity should be. You're listening to the Building Men Podcast with Dennis and Anthony Miralda, brothers on a mission to help you become the strongest version of yourself mentally, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. Anthony Miralda, what's up, bro? We're back. I want to start this episode with a... An interesting fact about me, something weird about me that I recognized yesterday. That I, I'm driving in my truck, and I dropped off um, Danny for basketball practice. I'm driving in my truck, and I, f- I had to blow my nose. I like I'm I'm snotty right now. I have a ton of mucus. It's a great way to start the I podcast. Hate this, right? I, I hate I hate. I blow my nose. You know, and whenever you blow your nose, I like I look into <laughs> wait, the, wait. I, I look into the <laughs> tissue and. Um, I love blowing my nose. I recognize it's so fucking weird, but I really enjoy that. It's like very gratifying. When you I, clean it out, you like, know, the, all the snots come out. Dude, literally, <laughs> so when you when we were like talking about this beforehand, I was like, what's something weird I do? What's something weird I do? And I was going to say that I've blown my nose into my hand before. Have you? Like, that's disgusting. <laughs> it's fucking it's gross. It's so gross. And I'm like, what do I do now? And now I got snot on my... That's just... Dis- it's, it's terrible. So what do you do that's weird that you haven't told anybody about it that's oh, really fucking God. out there? Where do I even begin? I feel you like do a lot of weird shit. So there's many so many weird avenues I could go down. So one of the weirdest things, and somebody called me out on this. It was probably like a year ago. Whenever I'm like excited <laughs> running up the steps, whatever the steps are, I tend to go like gorilla style on all four like a like or like a lion and i'm like like galloping and they're like what the fuck was that and i'm like what do you mean i'm just getting up the steps and i where were you when you did this or where are you do, like do you do this at if you're going up the steps at the mall or something or well, like- if i'm really jacked up trying to get somewhere i noticed that i could like shave off a couple minutes on <laughs> or like in your life in the course in of my your life. life so imagine that imagine how many places i could get to faster if i'm on all fours I get it. So weird. I get the four-legged creatures out there. What we've been missing out. <laughs> All right, so we're going to segue over to our guest right now. Our guest is the author of Fucking History: 111 Lessons You Should Have Learned in School. Which, by that title, the audience knows that we are going to have a lot to talk about right there. Mm. Feel free to quote me a three-part series, and the last one is Speech Therapy: 52 Pick-me-ups to get you through many of life's what the fucks. Awesome book. Just got done with it. Can't wait to talk to our guest, Kyle Creek, a.k.a. The Captain. Welcome aboard, my friend. Hey, thanks for having me. I don't know if uh, talking about blowing your nose is contagious like yawning, but I suddenly have to blow mine after hearing that intro. I'm sitting here the whole time. I'm sniffling, trying to, not to make too much noise as you guys are having your little intro there. Well, that could be the big thing about this podcast. Everybody comes on and fucking, you know, lets loose, blows up, yeah. you know. Do you, ever, do you ever just plug one nostril when you're in the shower and just really, oh, like, that's what I find to be the most... That's the most satisfying nosebleed you can have is the shower humidity and you plug one nostril and just let it go. Rock it's it. beautiful. And then you leave there and you're still and you're clean and you You got a story about college, right? Didn't you and talk? Then, oh, yeah. Well, go ahead. <laughs> so <laughs> you're gonna like this. So I was walking home from uh, from football practice and I pass by the softball field every time that I walk back from football. Um, and so I'm looking and there's this first baseman and she's like, you know, fucking athletic like probably you know big girl 180 pounds yeah, I, like I would, I would imagine an athlete would be described as athletic so thank you for right that in. yeah 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 you're right there's, and there's a couple big beefy girls that i don't know if i would describe as athletic yeah maybe football, it makes sense why she was either the catcher or the first baseman like that's where she fits in but anyway so i'm walking past her and i see her and she's like cheering on everybody and getting going and all of a sudden she just does one nostril and then the other nostril and just right in front of me both cleaned them out and i was like oh fuck that was impressive that was impressive so did you get down on one knee right then and there i just i i can't believe we're not seeing her at christmas dinner this year i know i know surprise so Kyle, to that to that end, tell us something about yourself in that respect. Uh, some weird fucking thing about you. I'd say a little known fact that people don't know about me is I actually was a collegiate football player. Um, hearing your brother talk about it reminded me of you know going to the the games myself in college. 
I quit about two weeks into the first season of college football because I decided I liked partying more than sports. I never really liked sports. It's something that was expected of me because I'm, you know, I'm six, six, I'm a bigger guy. And so I don't talk about it much. I, I actually hate on sports quite often. I talk a lot of shit on people that make sports too large a part of their life. And so not a lot of people know that I actually had a college scholarship for football. I was a defensive end. And yeah, I think that's a little known fact. That's yeah, absolutely. That it doesn't come across in anything that you're doing, and you definitely talk it's a lot about. Not, it is not. Yeah, yeah it, it's not a part of my life. That I, it's a part of my life I actually forget about. Most people bring it up to me, and it's interesting too because I've recognized I was the guy who was so in, enamored with my my baseball team, my football team that I followed, and it, it would hurt me on Monday morning if the Giants lost on Sunday. I'd I'd get butthurt, and it would affect how I was showing up. Finally, I was like, "Are you kidding me? Like, is am I going to make this something that's going to determine?" how I feel about the world on Monday if my team loses. It's crazy. Yeah, I think it's an unfortunate attachment a lot of us have with stuff externally. I mean, I understand the entertainment aspect of sports. I still like to go to the bar and watch a, a game if my friends are watching it, but I, I couldn't care less about who wins or who loses. Um, it's that whole idea of living vicariously through someone else's yep. accomplishments that's always really turned me off towards cheering someone on in that aspect. Um, if you can watch sports in a way that's just entertaining, you can enjoy the game and walk away from it, you know, no matter what. I think that's a very healthy way to enjoy sport and enjoy sports. But when you see these people naming their kids Dallas Cowboys and that kind of shit, that's just unhealthy. And I think that a lot of people cause themselves, like you said, suffering and you'll ruin your day or you'll ruin your week over something that's completely out of your control. And that's really, you know, what the book Speech Therapy was about with all those different situations. And actually, your team losing is one of the chapters I included in there because it's such an attachment that a lot of people have and one that's very powerful. I mean, if I bet on a game, um, I like to get in on some parlays with my buddies sometimes just because it makes it exciting to be there. That's about the only time I will pay enough attention to care. But other than that, I mean, sports are great. They're fun. I think being athletic and outdoors is awesome. I'm glad I played sports growing up as a kid. I think it taught me a lot of healthy competition. It taught me a lot of teamwork and things that, you know, have benefited me as an adult. But for the most part, I, I am not a sports fan or anyone that I would consider, um, you know, even like an, an avid sports guy in the least. It's interesting, too, the the attachment, especially that I would say men have to that living vicariously through their kids playing sports as well. You're a new dad right now. And you you talk about it a lot, like your philosophy on life, your your outlook, the way that you see everything has shifted after you have become a father. You actually put in the book, being a father is like being a farmer. You know, you want to grow something and you don't want it to turn out gross pretty much. So talk to us a little bit about just uh, just how that has impacted you, your your mindset on life after you become a father. Being a dad is something I was never sure I wanted to be or I mean, in my earlier 30s, I kind of thought I'll be one of those guys that becomes a father when he's 50 after I've lived my life. Um, but being a dad has been probably one of the greatest blessings in the sense that it just opened my mind up to how much bullshit I was worrying about day to day. Um, having someone to worry about outside of yourself in that capacity and also just the little things that you deal with as a parent, you know, having your kid like shit on you or just spit up or it really puts things in per, into perspective and all the drama and just the, the focus on, you know, my relationships with my friends and stuff in ways that were unhealthy have just completely shifted to where I appreciate the times I have with people more. And I have just have so much less patience for the unnecessary stuff in life, like gossip and anything like that that comes my way. It's like, I don't have time for this shit. And I was actually talking to my buddy about this last week. And he asked his mom, he's like, how come you never get anxiety? And his mom said to him, when you have kids, you just, you just learn that different things matter. And I couldn't agree with that more. Um, my anxiety, my stress, um, just the way I was hyper-focused on my, my, my reputation or the way people thought of me had just completely changed to where if my kid's happy and well taken care of, I know my clear, career is going to flourish. I know everything else is going to come into place. Um, I related a lot to getting a dog. When I got a dog, too, I think it kind of knocked me out of a lot of my OCD tendencies. I think when we're alone too long as individuals, um, it actually has a negative effect on us. Where you get caught in these little routines, you get caught in these patterns of thinking, and to where anything outside of that, people see it as 
uh, you know, something that prevents them from their ability to do absolutely nothing. People start to view all responsibility as something to be, you know, avoided. And everyone wants to be able to cancel plans and stay at home and, you know, protect their mental health. But really, I think by avoiding all that stuff, you're actually doing a detriment to your mental health. I think responsibility is good for you. I think having a pet that'll randomly destroy your shoe one day is good for you. Because it teaches you just a bunch of coping skills. It teaches you how to deal with the way, you know, life throws things at you sometimes. And I have buddies that are single. They've been single and they're in their 40s now. And they've been single for, you know, 10 plus years. And I have a hard time being around some of them because they are so anal about so many dumb little things. It's like, man, you need a dog. You need something to come into your life and just fuck shit up to get you out of this, this mindset of trying to control everything that comes your way. Absolutely. You and I actually you posted about it or no, it's actually a chapter in your book actually about the time that we spent alone during quarantine. You basically said, "Listen, there's this might happen again." And the worst thing is when we're alone and then we're looking at social media, we're scrolling through social yeah. media. That yeah. leads to this depressive state that we might go through as men. What was a lesson that you learned during that time as as everything was locked down? You talked, "Okay, it was going to be 2 weeks and all of a sudden it's fucking a long time." What would you learn about yourself during that time? So let me backtrack a bit. So 2019 was a very formative year for me, if anyone was following me at that time. Um, prior to that, I'd spent a couple of years getting a little bit of notoriety on social media. I was actually working as a creative director for a lot of hospitality brands. And so I was traveling constantly. I was on a new flight every one or two days. I was always in a new city, constantly just staying at nice hotels, going out to bars just really living the lifestyle I think a lot of young males think is like the epitome of this guy's, this guy's, you know, living the fucking life. And it just started to wear on me after a while where I realized I'd lost touch with a lot of my friends. Um, Cause if I did see them, it was very quick. We'd get a couple beers, we'd get drunk. We wouldn't have any deep conversations and I'd be on to the next city I had to go to. Or I just got so tired of traveling alone because for the most part i'd travel alone i'd show up i'd have a meeting with my client then i'd have a couple nights to kind of hang out and i'd meet people i'm a very social guy i'd go out i'd you know ask people to meet me at bars and stuff but i never really had like a a real connection with anyone and it just started to kick my ass after a while and so i quit that job i moved out of new york city and i moved to la and i thought okay this is gonna be better for my health i have some friends in la i can enjoy the outdoors a little more my life's going to slow down a bit and nothing really changed. I just started just kind of yearning for the lifestyle that I felt like I left behind. And I just became incredibly, incredibly depressed. And to everyone else, it still seemed like I was living the life. I had just signed a major book deal with a major publisher. I was still traveling quite frequently and I had a lot of freedom since I was no longer in that position, but I had no real purpose outside of my work and my writing became something that I started to despise because I was no longer writing about what I enjoyed. I was writing what I thought people wanted to read from me. And as a creative, I think that's probably the most detrimental thing you can do is start performative creation as opposed to, you know, writing what you feel is true. And so 2019 fucked me up. Um, I wrote a post about mental health telling everyone that I was in a bad place and I needed to take care of it. I had an outpoint of support. I took about a month off social media altogether, deleted all the apps from my phone. I went stone cold sober. I did nothing but read, do therapy, work out, hang out with my family. I moved back to Utah temporarily. And I got out of it in the fall and I was feeling really good. I finished a new book. And then come 2020, I was ready to hit the ground running again. And then all this, you know, obviously quarantine shit happened. And it forced me to go back into the place I thought I'd escape. And so for the first part of quarantine, I became very depressed again. I felt like I'd just kind of overcome this giant and now life was kneecapping me again. So for the first little bit, I kind of started to slip back into that self-pity state. And that fucked me up. That was probably the worst thing I could have done. And looking back on it now, it wasn't until I made the decision to make the most of it that it really changed for me. That's when I decided I was going to write another book. I was going to, you know, focus on doing all the things that I had never allowed myself to do because I was too busy. I mean, I got in really good shape again. I started working out more than ever. Um, I focused a lot of my stuff just on my relationship. Uh, my girlfriend and I had actually broken up for six months when I went through my depressive episode, and I didn't think we were going to get back together. And we did, and then a couple months later, we found out she was pregnant. So it kind of all came full circle for me when... 
I'd say I let go of control and I allowed life to kind of just throw things at me, but I made the most of what was thrown at me. And I'd say my career now is probably the best it's ever been. Um, I don't travel as much as I used to. I don't party as much as I used to. Um, my lifestyle online probably doesn't look nearly as badass uh, as it did a couple years ago, but I'm in the best state I've ever been in. And I never thought at this age that I'd already be a dad with a dog and two cats living in Miami, Florida. I mean, I always figured I'd stay in New York for a while or I figured I'd be in L.A. kind of living that that nightlife bullshit rider um, lifestyle. But I'm glad the way things happen. I honestly feel like quarantine did a lot of good for me. I think, you know, there's a lot of, of stuff to talk about there, how it fucked up the world. But for me personally, I, I, I found a benefit in all of it. I think it's Jim Carrey who said, you know, for all those of you who think that being rich and famous is the absolute tits, that's the bomb to be, you should try it for a little bit and recognize we all go through the same shit. We all go through that self-doubt. We all go through that lack of confidence. We all go through that depressive state and we're all human beings. It's, I, I, well, I think it's Jim Carrey that said that. Um, yeah, I think he actually, I think the full quote is he says, for everyone that thinks, you know, being rich and famous is going to make you happy, I hope you achieve everything you want to see it's not the answer. Yep. Um, and it's, it's very true. I mean, I'm not a kind of person who's going to talk bad on being successful. I think it's great to be successful. I think it's great to want to make a lot of money. I think it's great to want to have a badass career and be someone of notoriety. I think people should strive for that. And I think a lot of people take quotes like Jim Carrey's as an excuse to kind of sit on their hands and, and not try as hard in life. Like, oh, well, this is basically demonizing success where it's not demonizing success. It's demonizing what you attach to that success, which is your, your individuality and your self-worth. Um, I think that's a big plague we're having in society right now, where people are afraid. People are afraid to brag about their accomplishments because it's seen as being vain. People are afraid to, you know, try to do something big because their friends are like, oh, well, you're just trying to do it for the money. Like, who the fuck cares? If you're trying yeah. to do something with your life, do it. Um, it's what you do with that power. It's what you do with that money. It's what you do with those accomplishments that really matter. I have a lot of friends that are incredibly successful that are very happy because they're doing a lot of good with their, their, uh, their power in their world. They're doing a lot of good with what they've been given. And I have a lot of friends that are some of the most miserable fucks I've ever met that I actually have a hard time being around who are also mega successful. Um, it really goes back to what I was saying. It's like when life throws your way, it's kind of what you make out of it. And I don't think people should use, you know, cautionary, you know, statements like Jim Carrey's as an excuse to not try, which I think too many people do. And they're becoming way too comfortable with complacency. Absolutely. And when you think about we have this, we have one fucking time here. Let's make the most out of everything and be the most badass you you can possibly be without all those excuses. T talk to us a little bit about what you've seen in your work the biggest problem facing men today, like what, what would you say if somebody's like, hey, Cap, what do you think is the biggest thing that men are dealing with right now or struggling with? I'm sure I could probably think of a different answer if I thought on it longer, but I think probably one of the biggest things that a lot of men are struggling with is just authenticity. I think men are afraid to be men these days. Um, I'm not going to go so far as to say there's a war on men. I know it's a popular thing to talk about, but I think a lot of guys are just lost. I think they idolize the wrong individuals. I think they are afraid to embrace who they truly are in the sense that you might not want to be a playboy, but that doesn't mean you're a loser. I mean, I think guys look at the, you know, the Dambosarians of the world, and a lot of guys look up to someone like that and think, okay, this is the ultimate example of masculinity where it's not. There's a lot to be said about men who are in stable relationships, who are fathers, who work nine to five hardworking jobs that are really good dudes that live their life with integrity, that live their life honestly, and they're authentic. And I think it's probably something that's plaguing much more than just men. I think the world suffers from a lack of authenticity, um, especially now where I think a lot of people are afraid to speak their truth or they're afraid to even admit they believe something is true because the online mob will come after you if it's something that differs from a mainstream opinion. And so everyone feels just so suffocated with an inability to be themselves and the people that they see as examples of being themselves most likely aren't being themselves. And I use Dan as an example because I actually, you know, have some friends that are, are close to him and I know some of the other group that he runs around with. And a lot of those dudes are fucking miserable. 
Um, a lot of those guys are completely different in real life and they're either actually very relaxed, chill, calm individuals. And they put out this persona that they're kind of like boisterous and badass, but they're actually very reserved or they're just completely, you know, the opposite of what they portray themselves to be because they're trying to promote this lavish lifestyle as the way to happiness or as the way to get you to buy into whatever they're selling. And I just think there's a huge, huge discrepancy of people promoting the right things. And I think it's just integrity, authenticity, honesty. You're not going to want the same things as everyone else. And that's fucking great. You're not going to need to be like these other men or women or anyone else online who look like they have it together. And that's also fucking great. You should find what makes you fulfilled. You should find what makes you uh, passionate about getting up every day. And I know it sounds cliche, but that's the truth. And maybe that's not being on social media at all. Maybe you just want to have a super quiet life and get married and have a couple kids. And guess what? That's not a bad idea. I mean, I think society tends to look down that saying like the traditional family model is kind of dead, but if that's what you want in life, awesome. I have friends that that's all they want. And I think that's fucking great. I have friends that want to be, you know, billionaires with a B and they'll tell you that they're like, I'm not going to be happy till I'm a billionaire. And that's fucking great. But as long as you're being authentic and pursuing what is you, I, I think that's the right way to live your life. The building men programmer, the the whole movement behind building men started way back in 2005. And I'm working with kids as uh, as assistant principal, this group of young men. And I talk to them about what do they think it means to be a man? Like, what does that actually mean to them? And what they did cap was they developed this idea in their mind through their, their experience, through their friends, through what they were seeing in media was if you were a better athlete, that meant you were a better man. That's what they were thinking. The more girls you bang, that means you're a better man. And then the more zeros at the end of your bank account means that you're a better man. So that was what they believed masculinity meant. So now you're a father of a son. How would you tell him, son, this is what it means to be a man. This is what it actually is. I think being a man is being yourself. And I think that's what a lot of people suffer, suffer with. I mean, my dad, for example, is probably one of the most authentic, trustworthy masculine men I've ever known. I mean, when I was in high school, my dad bench pressed 675 pounds. I mean, my dad was a powerlifter. He's a fucking huge dude. And he's a delivery truck driver and he lives in a rented, you know, apartment attached to someone's home. And, you know, he doesn't drive fancy cars, doesn't have a big title. But my dad is what I would consider like a man. Um, and he raised me and my brothers very well. He raised us to, um, pursue our own interests in life i mean my dad is the reason why i became an entrepreneur my dad is the reason why i put fucking history out i was actually at a hotel in washington dc in the lobby waiting for my car to pick me up and i was texting my dad and it was i think it was you know probably fall around october time and i said i really want to put a book out um of like a history book but i don't think i have the time to do it and my dad for like three days would just call me every morning and say, Hey, have you started that book? Have you started that book? And he was just hounding me saying, if you don't write that book, you're going to regret it. And so my dad's the reason why that first book came out. Um, and really he was just encouraging me to pursue what he knew would fulfill me. And it's different than what fulfills him. It's different than what fulfills my brother. I mean, my older brother's a doctor. My younger brother's a journeyman electrician in Seattle. We all have dramatically different lifestyles. But our dad raised us to just find that lifestyle that made sense to us. And so maybe you want to be an athlete and you want to crush other athletes. That's fucking awesome. Good for you. Like you should try to be the best at whatever you do. You know, maybe you don't. And that's also fucking great. So I think being a man is really just being your authentic self. And if you think about it, it takes more courage. It takes more of a fuck you mindset to be yourself than it does to follow what society thinks masculinity should be. And if you want to meet someone who truly, you know, doesn't give a fuck, which doesn't exist, everyone gives a fuck to some extent, but if you want to meet someone who truly doesn't give a fuck, it's someone who's pursuing their life despite what other people think about it. Love that. So you mentioned the fucking history, 111 lessons you should have learned in school. Pick out one or two from that book that you're like, this, for me as, as, you know, as a former educator, former principal, I talk about it all the time. The shit that we taught, teach in school is such bullshit. We need to refocus and, and shift education in a different way. So pull out one or two of the, the lessons from that book that you'd love the audience to hear about. 
So the premise of that book was saying like the lessons you should have learned in school is the book is meant to teach you concepts or to teach you coping skills or to teach you ways to deal with situations that we're all going to deal with. Um, you said earlier, you know, we all deal with the same shit, whether we're celebrity or not. The premise of that book was to show people we st- we all deal with the same shit, whether you lived a thousand years ago or today. Um, and I used examples of kings and queens and very powerful individuals who dealt with heartbreak, who dealt with being betrayed, who dealt with people not believing in them. And it doesn't matter whether you're, you know, attempting to be an athlete today or you're attempting to conquer a country a thousand years ago. You deal with the same emotions like our emotions of humans have not fucking changed. Um, Our technologies have our ways of life have some would say for the better. Some would say for the worst. But our emotions are the same. And so I like the story I opened it with, which is about, you know, being ghosted by someone which, you know, is all too common in dating today and i think a lot of people allow it to really crush their confidence and so i open with the story of edith wharton who was a very you know famous author she was the first woman ever to win a pulitzer prize for her work writing novels and she had someone that she was completely infatuated with another writer and they thought she thought for sure they were going to be together forever and he just up and left her one day and for years afterwards she wrote letters trying to regain that connection with him and she wrote about 400 letters in total. He never responded to anything, but she didn't let it wreck her life. She didn't let it, you know, weigh her down. She went on to write several novels. She went on to be a reporter on the front lines of World War One. She was one of the only journalists allowed into the trenches with the actual troops. And she retired in, you know, the French countryside in a fucking manner with, a, you know, massive gardens. Like, she went on and, and kicked ass in life. And I like that story because... She didn't sit there and let this ghosting situation haunt her. She didn't let this rejection haunt her, you know, per se. And I think rejection is something that destroys a lot of people's dreams. And I remember once in school being taught how to deal with rejection. I don't remember being taught anything about how to deal with that kind of emotional turmoil, which I think if you have a healthy mechanism of dealing with rejection and turning it into something positive and using it as fuel or either learning something from it, that's going to propel you farther in life than anything you're ever going to learn in like a traditional math or social studies course. Do you also talk about in the book, this idea of catastrophizing, like taking something that is, that is, you know, a a smaller thing and then making it such a a bigger thing, or this, you, you call it a cognitive distortion that causes us to jump to the absolute worst possible conclusion. Talk to us a little bit about that and, and, you know, where you developed that idea in in your book or how how did you make it work in your book? Yeah. So this is in my new book, speech therapy you're talking about, but I still do that. We all do this yeah. shit. I think it's natural. It's natural human tendency to look at the worst case scenario. Um, you can just find a way to rein it in to where you're not doing it so often. But, you know, say, for example, you lose your job. The first thing you're going to do when you lose your job is you start tallying all the things that's going to affect in your life. You start thinking, oh, shit, how am I going to pay for this car? How am I going to pay for this house? Um, if you have children, how am I going to take care of them? which is normal. You should kind of go through a checklist of things. That's kind of how you assess the situation. But we do that again and again and again, and we'll do it for days on end. And we'll start to think, oh shit, what if I don't get a job for a month? What if I don't get a job for six months? What if I don't get a job for a year? And we'll basically paralyze ourselves with just this fear of how bad it could get. When in reality, after that initial assessment of what needs to be taken care of, you should start using that brain power to think of a way out of it. And if you can use that energy in a positive way, it's going to completely change the way you live your life, but it's also going to get you back on track more quickly than anything. There's no good in catastrophizing the situation. I mean, for a a relationship, for example, you know, when someone has their first heartbreak, they catastrophize that. Like it's something that no one's ever dealt with in life besides them. They tend to think like they're the only one who understands it and they'll talk to their friends and family and they'll say, oh, you don't get it. You don't get it. No, they fucking get it. Everyone's had their heart broken. Billions of people on this planet have had their heart broken. People get it. And guess what? They get through it. And there's a lot of people who would tell you their first heartbreak is the best thing that ever happened to them. You just can't see it at the time because you're catastrophizing how painful it is. And it should hurt. It's going to hurt. It's not, I'm not saying you should be able to break up and just walk away the next day like nothing bothers you. If anything, that's probably the worst way to handle it. You need to allow yourself to feel those emotions, but you can't allow yourself to dwell on those emotions 
in the most extreme fashion to where they just destroy your ability to live. I mean, I've had friends who have been broken up with and they've never recovered. Like they're a different person five years later, 10 years later. And they wonder why their life is not where they want it to be. Or they wonder why they can't trust anybody or they wonder why, you know, they have such a hard time dating. It's like, dude, it's because you never healed from what happened to you when you were 19. Um, you, you actually made the catastrophe much worse by trying to ignore right. it. So you need to feel it. You need to sit in your ship and then you need to get over it. And in the book, Cap, it's like, Cap, is it all right if I shorten it to Cap instead of Captain? I took some liberties right there. upon yourself. <laughs> Basically, the book, 52 Lessons, that um, I, I, the thing that I love about it so much is they're easily to consume chapters about different things that we all deal with, the shit that we're thinking about that no one talks about. One that I that really resonated with me was Butting Heads, that chapter. It's, ch- it's page 20 in the book, and I took a ton of notes around it and a shit shit that i dealt with in my past was uh avoiding conflict people pleasing trying to make like you know make the situation okay by me bending who i was authentically and it was slowly eroding at my soul for a long time until i really dealt with that shit like you just mentioned i needed to do that work internally and, and so I'll, I'll pull out a quick quote from that chapter there are two truths in every relationship be it romantic or platonic you will have disagreements and you will have compromises however fear of the first should never be the reason for the latter i underline that i'm gonna fucking put it up on my refrigerator to remember that all the time that we can't let fear be the reason that we compromise we can't be afraid of a fucking situation by changing who we are to make someone else happy this kind of goes back to what i've been saying all along i think inauthenticity is the biggest problem plaguing men or just society yep. in general these days and that's exactly what that quote is about i mean if you're afraid to be yourself you're never going to be happy in that relationship because that person doesn't even know the real you. If you're compromising to keep someone else happy when you know it's like goes against what you really want, you're teaching that person to love or admire a false you, which is what a lot of people also do on social media. So then when there is a time that you really need to be yourself, you have so much self-doubt you're not going to do that. And that's what's happening on social media. That's what happens in relationships. That's what happens at jobs. We compromise ourselves so much that when we need to be ourselves or we need to have that courage to actually step up, we don't do it. And that's when you make the really critical mistakes, the stuff that you look back on and go, damn, that fucked my life up. Um, I'd go so far as to say the majority of the problems I've ever had in my life and probably most people's lives are due to bad communication. Um, It's either you being afraid to say what you really think or it's you being afraid to accept what someone else really thinks. Those two things in life will either fuck up a lot of things for you or they'll make a lot of things a lot better. You'll either get out of situations that are wasting your time or you'll stop wasting your time pursuing situations that aren't right for you. And so, like, I, I mean, I'm sorry to, like, you know, it's kind of become like a broken record at this point, but that inauthenticity that's going on right now is, is the major issue in, in society. Totally agree, and that's uh, not that we wanted to beat a dead horse with it, but that's such a powerful point in in everything that you're talking about is being okay with being you, letting the world see who the fuck you are, and not being ashamed of it. Um, you put out a post uh, a, a while back. You're standing, you're fishing, your fucking pants are around your ankles, <laughs> and it's the 35 lessons you learned in your 35 years. And I, what I've, I, I for the, for the building men audience, if you send an, an email to buildingmencoach at gmail.com. The first 10 people to do so with this quote, hippos are fucking dicks. <laughs> We're going to send you a free copy of the book, Speech Therapy. So the first 10 people that send the quote, hippos are fucking dicks, will get a free copy of the book. Tell us why you put that in there. The, the rest of it is like, you know, <laughs> your past will let it kill, will, will kill you if you let it. Love without boundaries isn't love, it's delusion. All those things. And then and hippos are stuck out. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I love it. It's because it's true. It's as true as everything else I said in that in that list. I mean, I think growing up, I remember thinking like hippos are just these big cuddly creatures. But then I watched a I watched a bull. I think they're called bull hippos. The males eat like a calf because it wasn't his offspring. And I was like, man, that is fucking brutal. And I just think it's something more people should know. I mean, I my first stuffed animal that I can remember as a kid was a big plush hippo. I actually remember this vividly. 
that I had this big plush hippo in my bed, which it seems odd to have a fucking predator that's that ruthless raise your child. <laughs> and so I, I, just, I just feel like throwing it in there because I don't think enough people know how brutal the animal kingdom is. And also it was kind of just a reminder that nature's fucked up. I mean, if you follow that nature is metal page on Instagram, yeah, <laughs> I'm fascinated with that stuff. I grew up in Utah. I grew up, you know, catching rattlesnakes. I grew up, you know, chasing God knows what through the woods. Me and my brothers and our, you know, our friends, we'd take our 22s or, you know, we'd borrow one of our dad's revolvers and we'd just trape off into the woods and get into all sorts of stuff. And so I, I, I've always been fascinated with nature. I love the animalistic, you know, part of life. And so that's why I threw it in there. It's true. And it just kind of, you know, appeals to my passion for, for ant- wildlife. <laughs> I love I love when people talk about like, we need to be more like animals. I was like, oh, okay, so we just rape Dude. and kill everything all the Dude. time. I'm like, I don't. You want to talk about what's crazy is people that like to always say, you know, we're no better than chimpanzees, or they use chimpanzees as like examples for all sorts of things. Chimpanzees are fucking mean. Those are some of the most brutal creatures. I watched a video, and they're intelligent as all hell too. I watched a video of a bunch of chimpanzees hunting spider monkeys. And so they basically have a bunch of chimps at one end of the forest. They have a large chimp act as a flusher and he'll scare the spider monkeys down to where all the other chimps are hiding. And they just catch these things and start ripping them apart and eating them like chicken wings. And it's like their way of just having like a treat or some sport. And if you've never seen a chimpanzee tear another monkey in half and eat it raw, you have no idea how fucked up the animal (laughs) kingdom is. And then on top of that, male chimps when they come over and take over you know a previous alpha male's territory they'll do similar things that hippos do like if there's offspring that isn't theirs they'll literally pull that offspring right off the mom and they'll eat it um that's fucked up and so people are like oh we're no better than chimps like no we're we're better than chimps trust me dude there's people that still do fucked up shit like that i mean jeffrey dahmer and guys like that exist but for the most part we don't need to be more like animals they're very fucking brutal and if we lived our life that way there'd be a lot more people claiming that society is out of whack i mean people talk about you know being offended by words or being offended by these little dumb things online these days it's like god you know 200 years ago you would take your kid to go watch a public beheading in the town square and that was like entertainment the world hundreds of years ago is so much more brutal than it is now we have different things we deal with you know emotionally i think emotionally we're probably in a worse place than we were, but as far as like physically and, you know, the, just the way we live in general, the world is so much more fucked up in the past. Hundred percent. Yeah. Would you rather be stuck in a room with a hippo or three chimpanzees? A hippo. A you hippo. Would... Have you like? Because the thing about chimpanzees too is I've, I've actually done a lot of research and I've got pretty. There's a couple of years I got really into this, um, looking at like what chimpanzees would do. But they're so intelligent; they know if they attack you. The three areas they're going to go after first is they're going to go up to your eyes. And so they gouge your eyes out. They bite your fingers off because they know these are weapons. And they rip off your genitalia. Um, and so if you look up, like, zookeepers that have been attacked by their chimps or people who have been attacked, males specifically that have been attacked by chimps in the wild, it's always those three characteristics. They go for your face, they tear your hands off, and they tear off your balls. Um, that is... If you have three animals all trying to do that one thing to you that are 10 times stronger than you for body weight, you're, you're fucking done, man. I feel like a hippo, if I could shuck and dive one good time, I feel like I could get out the door. But there's, there's, there'd be no, there is no person on earth that could survive three chimps. And if you think you're having a bad day, just remember you could get your nuts ripped off by a chimpanzee. So just to put it in perspective. Exactly. Any day you – I actually talked about this on another podcast. completely different. But um, my, my dog got into the avocado tree in the backyard of this Airbnb the other day. And I have a great Dane. He's a big dog. And that night he got diarrhea. So I woke up the next morning and he had explosive diarrhea all over the guest room of this Airbnb. And that was not what I wanted to wake up to. And so I was telling this other guy, any day I wake up and my dog hasn't shit all over the guest room is a good day. <laughs> so oh, I, I think the same the same applies to that. Any day you wake up and you still have your dick and balls intact because you haven't interacted with the chimp, I think you should take that as a positive and take that momentum and carry it into your day. It's a win. And that might be the name of this, of this episode. Why fucking not, right? <laughs> <laughs> Any day you wake up with your dick and your balls and you haven't been attacked by the chimp, let's fucking go. We're we're winning right there. So tell us where you got the nickname from. Where did where did the captain come from? 
Uh, <laughs> so a lot of people ask me this. I don't answer it too often because it's kind of a long story. But in my early 20s, actually, it's not a long story. In my early 20s, I was, uh, I was pretty rowdy. Um, I don't know why. I had a chip on my shoulder. And when I went out to bars, I, I went to bars with the intention of getting kicked out of that bar. And it was fun for a lot of friends around me. I had a lot of fun at the same time. But my friends just started calling me the captain because they said going out with me was like getting on a ship and waiting for it to sink. Like you were kind of stuck on that boat and you just waited for Kyle to uh, to run it into an iceberg. And I hate to live up to my, my name, Kyle, as much as I did in my early 20s. But I was I was I was a rowdy dude and I had a lot of things to work out. And I'm glad that I kind of went through that. I think I got a lot of this shit out early in my life that. You know, men in their midlife crisis time start to kind of look back on and wish they've done. I've, I've probably done to the nth degree multiple times. Um, so that's where the nickname came from. And then I kind of wanted to just use, I started using the nickname online because at the time I was working for an advertising agency. It was one of my first like really good jobs as a writer. And I'd always tried to make money as a writer. I actually, I actually lived at home till I was 26 because I, I couldn't find a job that supported me enough to live out on my own. I, I, I was tour managing bands and so I'd go on tour and I came back and I would just crash in my parents had like an apartment attached to their house. I would live there when I, when I wasn't out and I got my first job as a writer and I just really did not want to fuck it up. I was so stoked that someone was finally paying me enough that I could have a truck and an apartment money to travel um, through my written word that I used the captain online because I was paranoid. Someone would find out that Kyle Creek was the one saying like these controversial statements um, even though I, I stand by everything I've said and I, I think, you know, most of what I've said is my authentic self. I just didn't want that convoluting my career. And so I used the captain online for many years. And then it got to the point that clients started wanting to work with me because they knew I was the captain. And I actually, I was in New York one time meeting with, um, a Ritz Carlton property, you know, very prestigious hotel brand. I was meeting with the asset managers for that property and, I was sitting in this meeting and I, I kind of, you know, thought I was incognito. And one of the asset managers, probably a guy in his late fifties, nudges me and he goes, Hey, my, uh, my wife loves your Instagram posts. And I was like, what the fuck? And he shows it to me and he's like, yeah, my, me and my wife think you're hilarious. And I, that was like the first time my worlds had really collided like that. And I was like, Oh damn, this is cool. Like people are not, you know, repelled by the idea that I have this very outspoken persona. They actually respect it. And I started getting more work and better projects because of it, because people knew that if I did come to the table, I was going to be honest. I'm not going to waste their time in meetings. I'm not going to, you know, beat around the bush if something needs to change. And that's kind of when I started being okay with people knowing, you know, both. But I didn't put my real name on my Instagram profile until I came back from that depressive leave in 2019 when I took some time to really work on myself. I came back and I wanted to be more open with people. Um, I mean, after admitting to half a million people, you want to kill yourself. There's not really much else that can embarrass you. So when I came back from that, I was like, all right, I'm going to call, I'm going to go by Kyle Creek first. That is who I am. A lot of people still know me as this captain character. So I'm still going to keep writing under that because people have associated my work with that for, you know, five, six, seven years at this point. Um, but yeah, I, I, I have no problem, you know, people, you know, knowing, knowing my business at this point. And like I said, a lot of people do want to work with me because they know what I've done online. You mentioned that a lot of the stuff that you put out there was controversial and you were okay with it because it, it was who you are going back to the whole authenticity thing. What's something that you put out there that got the most pushback or you're like, damn, I fucking said that. And I got a lot of shit coming back my way. Uh, I can't think of a particular one this time. I've, a few times I've said stuff where people have kind of attempted to start a little rally to cancel me online. It never really goes where uh, you know far because for one, I don't feed it. Um, I think a lot of times when people are afraid they're going to be accused of something they're not, they step back too much and they allow that narrative to take over and they allow it to start to consume them rather than be like, you know, nip it in the bud and be like, no, this is what I said. And this is why I stand by that. If you're willing to stand up for yourself from the get go, a lot of people will respect that and they'll actually understand why you did what you did. And so for people that are afraid to speak out online or say what they really think about a situation for fear, they're going to get some blowback. 
you're going to get blowback anytime you say something controversial. Just make sure what you're saying is truthful enough that you're willing to stand by those controversial statements. Um, don't just say stuff to try and get a reaction. or Don't just say stuff because your friends are saying it. Say stuff that you believe in, and when people attack you for it, it's going to be upsetting the first few times it happens. But after a while, you're like, damn right, this is what I said, and here's why I said it. And if you disagree with it, that's awesome. But this is me, this is my life, and this is what I want to say. And you see people that do that. I think a lot of people have a lot of respect for Dave Chappelle in particular because he does this. And people have never been able to successfully cancel his career no matter what he says because, for one, he knows what he's saying is a joke or he knows why he's saying it. But he doesn't give up on himself. He doubles down. He stands by what he does. He's like, listen, I'm a comedian. This is why you guys listen to me in the first place. And he doesn't go anywhere. And I think, you know, Joe Rogan does the same thing. Joe Rogan's not afraid to, you know, stick to his guns when he says something. And that's why those guys have careers that continue on is because they are being themselves. Dave Chappelle is not saying shit that he doesn't think is not funny. He thinks it's funny. He's willing to say it. And that's why he's willing to stick behind it. Joe Rogan believes what he believes. He's willing to say it and he's willing to stick by it. And so when it, when it comes down to people who have tried to throw that stuff back at me, the only time I've ever like second guessed myself is when I've thought on it longer to be like, you know what? That probably isn't as accurate as would have liked to portray it because now I'm having a hard time defending it. And that makes you feel guilty and that'll give you the self doubt. But also at the same time, it just serves as a reminder to me to be like, listen, I have a huge platform. I owe it to myself and others to say what I think. So if stuff like this does happen, it's just better for everyone. I'm willing to stand by it. And what I'm saying is something that I truthfully believe. And in regards to controversy, all those fucking hippo lovers out there, you can suck a bowl of dicks. Yeah, fuck you. Yeah, all that fucking controversy around that. Here. I, <laughs> I don't think it's possible to suck an entire bowl of dicks. You could definitely eat them. But sucking them is a lot All of at the same time. From experience, it's not possible. He's correct. I, I can see why. I can see why you left elementary education. <laughs> I was actually in middle school. It's more of a middle school joke to bullet the bullet text, right? Uh, I, I can I can still I can still see why you had to leave your vice principal job. Uh, so talk to us a little bit about your your process for writing i'm fascinated with you have a, a like your specific routine when you are in that creative mode to get something out on paper what do you go through for years i didn't have a routine i actually wrote about this this morning and i on my instagram i prided myself on not having a routine i thought that's what made me more creative um i would take notes i have like a note app on my phone and whenever like i see something that i think i can make a relation between similar to what a comedian would do i'll make a note to work on that rate later um, a lot of my tweets for the most part, I just fire them off in the moment. Like I'll be driving. If I have something hit me, I'll pull over and I'll type it out before I lose that thought. Um, so a lot of that's a spur of the moment. As far as my books, my writing process for those has changed from book to book. Um, my history books, I wrote very slowly where I do like a little piece at a time because I had to do a lot of research to make sure like what I was portraying was, you know, accurate. I'd have to fact check through multiple sources. Um, but with my speech therapy book, I was so in the mindset. I think I busted the first draft of that out in about three weeks. Um, and I, I wrote every night for about six to seven hours every night for about three weeks straight. And then from there, I took about another month doing three to four hours a night of editing to really refine it. And so that book was really compressed and tight. But I prefer to write at night. I used to prefer to write in the morning, but now with like having a dad and a dog, I mean, being a dad and having a dog, it's easy for me to get up, get all my family duties done, go to the gym, get all my emails and like my work stuff done. And once I have everything off my plate that way, and I know the rest of the day is mine to do what I want to do with, I can put in headphones and I can really get to work writing. So I don't have like a super regimen and routine that some writers do. Um, there's like the Japanese author, uh, Haruka Murakami, who gets up at 6 a.m. and he runs a half marathon and he writes for four hours. Then he has tea with his wife and then he writes for four more hours and he runs another half marathon. And he does that. It's intensely ridiculous. And he does it for like 90 days straight. 
Um, his writing routine is just, it's ape shit. I mean, any writer, if you Google like Haruko Murakami writing routine, I don't think he runs two half marathons any day, but I know he runs at least one. He's incredibly regimented. And I think a lot of that just kind of comes down to his culture being raised in that Japanese culture of just like that hyper focus. Um, but then there's other writers that I think are probably very loose with it. Um, I think the perception is a lot of writers like to write drunk, which I think is actually uh, something that just society is romanticized. I have done that quite a few times, but I wake up and it's usually garbage. Um, even like Ernest Hemingway, who people tend to think is like the godfather of drunk writing, um, he would write early in the morning. He would get up and he would write early in the morning and he'd be done by lunchtime. And then he'd get drunk and do right. his, you know, Ernest Hemingway, Ernest Hemingway lifestyle. But he was still a guy that was, was pretty focused and regimented in his work. Um, so, yeah, there's a, I think there's a lot of variety. I think you just find it works for you as a creative, you know, likewise with like a painter. Um, but my, mine's changed from book to book. I'm going to start another book here pretty soon. And that routine is going to be differently just based on what, how the book's going to come together. I know I'm going to have to do a different routine for that one as well. What's the premise of the new one? I'm not going to tell you All that. All right. <laughs> it's going to be like a, like a uh, special building men secret right there. <laughs> you, you mentioned your father was your hero. You, you basically talked about th this pillar of masculinity in your life and how you saw him as this really masculine man. Um, how about a, uh, an author that was an influence to you? The way Mark that they Twain. wrote. Mark Twain is your guy. Mark Twain. Mark Twain is by far probably my favorite author. I also, I, I really like Shel Silverstein as well. And I think it's because I grew up as a child. My mom was an English major and she actually was my, my editor for a while. She actually was my editor on this latest book, Speech Therapy. She was the first one to see the first draft um, because she wanted to kind of re rekindle that relationship we had where she edited my work. Um, she had just told me at one point my work had gotten too profane for her to read um but i think she uh she's worked past whatever hiccups she had there and she was she was willing to, to edit this last book for me um but she loved mark twain growing up and so i grew up reading a lot of mark twain my mom encouraged me to read a lot and when we were kids um we had what we called this like world map my mom put up in her her bedroom and she would reward us with travels around the world based on how many pages we read so like if you wanted to travel from, you know, United States to Australia, for example, uh, you'd have to read like 10,000 pages or something. It probably wasn't that much, but it was just a way as us kids to like feel like we were getting something out of our work. And then on top of that, if we read, we wouldn't have to do chores. So it was like you can either mow the lawn for four dollars for your allowance or you can read a book for four dollars. And I always chose the reading route. There was one summer I bet I read, you know, three dozen books between you know the school year starting and that was probably in like seventh or eighth you know now it's probably like fourth or fifth grade actually and I, I, was, I was just cranking books out because i didn't want to do chores so i read a lot of mark twain i've always respected how honest he is and i try to emulate him in my writing in the sense that he's not apologetic for things that he says are offensive and he stands by the things he says that offend people because he knows they're either inherently human or he knows it's like true, like what he writes is accurate and it offends people. And I think it offends people because they know it's they know it's true and they just wish it wasn't. And so I try and emulate that and stick him by my word. And I mean, he's also what many consider the first stand up comedian. So he had a lot of wit. Um, he had a lot of clever ways of looking at the world. And then I like Shel Silverstein and you can actually see Shel's influence in my books. That's where I got the idea for the real simple line art illustrations. Um, cause Shel Silverstein had a way of communicating very complex human emotions or very complex situations in very artful, simplistic ways. And so as a kid, I'm here reading, you know, like the giving tree or the missing piece or where the sidewalk ends, mm -hmm. like all his collections of poems. And if you read them now as an adult, you realize how much life lessons were actually in those. But as a kid, they just entertained you. And so I was trying to bridge that gap with my work to have it be a little more deep and longer form, but entertaining enough. And you already, you know, you hit on that earlier. They're like short, digestible yeah. chapters. And I did that on purpose because a lot of self-help books, and I've read a lot of them myself, either in research or just out of curiosity, they're so fucking heavy and there's so much information, you can't enact any of it. There's just too much. And you like, you're almost like, 
you know, it's like paralysis by analysis. Like there's just so much going on in the book. You, you either don't finish it or you don't apply any of it. Um, and that's why books like the four agreements are also very popular is because that's a book you can read in a weekend and you can apply that stuff instantly. Um, you know, Don Miguel Ruiz wrote that book in a very digestible fashion. And so I kind of like had all these different influences and I wanted to do something similar. And I like the chapter format I have because you can always return to those chapters in the moment. Like if you lose your fucking keys and before you look, you turn to that chapter and read the chapter about finding something you've lost. I guarantee you, you're going to be better off because of it. Or if like someone breaks up with you and before you go out with your friends and start taking shots of fireball and acting like an asshole, acting like you're, you know, you don't feel heartbreak. If you read that chapter about being broken up with, it will help you. But also, you know, you can read it all at once and then try and think back on it. But I like that it's a book you can constantly return to. It's a book you can pick up and put down. Um, I don't even remember the question you asked. I went off on a tangent, but... It was about the like, an author that really influenced yeah. you. And The Giving yeah, Tree, so my, too. That, I, I challenge you not to read that and get misty-eyed. That book always gets me. The Giving Tree, yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. I, I, I love, I love Shel Silverstein. I actually have... I actually went back and repurchased a lot of his books lately because they're either at my parents' house now or I'd just kind of forgotten how much work he'd put out there. Um, but yeah, he's, he's a stud. Shell's a good dude. You even have a chapter about, all right, you got some fucking nudes out there. You send a nude to someone, nude picture, and it's out there. How many times, brother, has that happened to you, right? Oh, boy. <laughs> I just sent you one this morning just to be like, hey, how you doing? So you, uh, happy Friday. Happy Friday. Here we go. Well, that's, that's another one of those things. Any day you wake up and your brother doesn't send you a dick pic, it's a good day. <laughs> so we got a well, nice yeah. list. We're constructing a nice yeah, list absolutely. here. Hey, no chimpanzees in my bedroom this morning. Nope. Amazing. No brother dick pics. I um I would love to know about the you mentioned your mom is, is editing the books. You you talked about your dad. Has there been an instance in your life where you put something out there where it it caused a riff in a relationship with a friend, a family member by something that you wrote? Not that I know of, not that's been brought to my attention. Um I'm sure it's happened. I actually, you know, have written quite a bit of stuff about people in the moment so if any of my friends you know are, are keen enough to be like damn we just talked about that yesterday and he's tweeting this there's a good chance i'm tweeting about our situation um but i think most of my friends and most of my family know i'm pretty blunt and honest and straightforward and so i i've never written anything about someone that i wouldn't have as a conversation with them in person so i i can't think of a situation that's happened to me or if it has no one's really voiced it to me so um, before we before we end the uh, the episode, um, Anthony, open up for any last questions. Yeah. So we like to end all these podcasts with um, what would be one piece of advice you can give to the people listening to this that they could start tomorrow if they wanted to. Uh, get comfortable being yourself. Um, get comfortable being yourself online. Get comfortable being yourself in your profession, in your relationships. Um, it's going to take time. It's one of those things that you kind of have to acquire a taste for, you know, similar to like drinking wine. Like I hated wine at first, but after a while I started to really appreciate it. And it's going to be the same with putting yourself out there. It's going to feel uncomfortable. Um, you're going to question yourself a lot, but then when there are times that you really need to stand up for yourself, you're not going to second guess yourself. You're going to be prepped for it. And those are the decisions that are going to dramatically affect your life. You know, when you're hit with a hard choice of whether to get divorced or not, or you're hit with the hard choice of moving across the country, you're going to have such a built up repository of positive experiences from when you've bet on yourself that you're going to be able to do it when it really matters. And so, uh, you know, again, we're talking about beating a dead horse. That's what I see the big issue with is a lot of people are afraid to be them, pursue what they want to pursue. Who cares what other people think about it? It might not be the lifestyle that others want, but it doesn't mean your lifestyle is the wrong choice. You're going to have friends that are going to give you advice because their wants and needs are different than yours. Like your friends might tell you, oh, no, you should take that job or, oh, no, you shouldn't get in that relationship because guess what? They themselves probably wouldn't. And that's fine. It doesn't mean their advice is the right advice for you. So you got to really get comfortable, you know, doing that. And it takes time, but start start with little things, you know. Next time you have a disagreement with your sibling or your or your boss, like speak up for yourself. Like tell them why you don't agree and why you you know you feel a certain way. And maybe you'll learn something. Maybe you won't. But you're going to get comfortable with uh, with with doing you. 
All right, Captain, where can the Building Men audience find you? How can they get in touch with you? Uh, Instagram, um, SGRSTK, but if you just search the Captain, it'll come up. Um, and then on Amazon, if you just search, like, the Captain books, all of mine should probably appear towards the top. Um, speech therapy, fucking history, the Feel Free to Quote Me series, those are all available on Amazon. Fucking history is available in Barnes & Noble. Um, I went through a major publisher with that one, so you can kind of get that book everywhere. Um, and I'm sure that they'll be able to find me on a link on one of your pages soon enough. So uh, they'll, they'll be able to get to me if they need to. Check us out on Instagram, building.men. Our website is buildingmen.io. Email us, buildingmencoach at gmail.com. Visit our sponsors, ftrapparelfinishtheraceapparel.com and Become Stronger Industries, the maker of handmade badass fucking steel maces. We have a retreat coming up April 28th through May 1st. It's called The Hero's Journey in Lake Tahoe, California. If you are feeling stuck, lost, in need of connection, feeling of brotherhood, join us on this retreat called The Hero's Journey. Reconnect to your inner hero. Go one step further than you thought you can go. We'll see you next time on Building Men. Building Men.